My name's Jonathan McKay, and I'm director of the university's department for continuing education, which is based here at Rooney House. So first, I want to welcome everyone to the department. Um, I hope you've heard of us before, but if not, even better, in a way. Uh, because a surprising number of people actually don't know about the activities of the department, despite the fact that, that we do such a, a range of, of different things. Um, I mean, Oxford and Cambridge are, are actually the two leading universities in the country in continuing education, which not a lot of people uh, know. And globally, it's probably Harvard and Oxford are the, the two leading um, universities. So it's very important that we continue that uh, tradition of the, the best universities investing in continuing education and reaching audiences other than just the full-time residential students. So welcome. Um, to the department. I'm also president of Kellogg College, which is one of the university's graduate colleges, and emerged out of the Department of Continuing Education originally, along with actually the Department of, of Education, because it's dedicated to supporting students who are still working or carrying with other responsibilities and studying only part-time. And up until 1990, actually that wasn't allowed uh, in Oxford, up until 1990, no student was allowed to work while still studying. It was that strange, particularly to Americans. But that's actually still the rule for undergraduates. You're still not allowed to work if you're an undergraduate student at Oxford. That may change, you never know. But in 1990, at least it changed for postgraduates. Um, you might think, well, how could you possibly have that rule? Because how could you have an executive MBA, um, which is where people carry on working and do it? Of course, in 1990, Oxford didn't recognise man from the business as a legitimate academic subject. <laughs> <laughs> it was in the after 1990 that Oxford came to establish uh, um, business schools. And I'm also director of the Oxford Centre for Mutual and Employer Business, which is what I'm going to be uh, talking about now. <coughs> Finally, I also happen to be treasurer of the Oxford Society, the Alumni Association, which organised this whole weekend. So if any of you do have any feedback, suggestions for next year, for or anything you let me know after or, or over lunch. Given this is alumni weekend, I thought I should very briefly introduce myself by saying that I, I did uh, EP originally, um, actually at Balliol. Um, to be fair to myself, the reason I wasn't at Kellogg is A, Kellogg's a graduate college, and B, when I was a student, Kellogg hadn't even been thought of, let alone uh, established. Um, I, I did the DPhil there, briefly at college lecturer in economics before going off and doing various policy uh, jobs, ending up in, in Brussels as an expert at the European Commission. I hasten to add I didn't design the Euro, and I was <laughs> other things. Uh, and then, then when I became a, uh, an academic, I actually went to Cambridge a couple of years ago, I wouldn't put that on here, but now that we've got a Vice-Chancellor from Cambridge, you can, uh, you can now uh, admit that openly. And funny enough, that was just around the time, 1990, when Oxford came through both recognizing management and business as legitimate academic subject. So I became the head of the economics, accounting and finance group of uh, the business school in, in Cambridge. I actually then went to Birkbeck College as the Sainsbury Professor of Management and head of the School of Management at, at Birkbeck for seven years, uh, which is sort of the equivalent of, of continuing education where, where most of the students were working and doing their degrees part-time, undergraduate as well as, as postgraduate. And then at uh, the University of Birmingham, at the dean of the business school, and then back here four and a half years ago. Uh, um, so it's great to be back, and now I can just concentrate on uh, continuing education 
in Oxford. Very briefly, um, as I said, we are um, one of the leading uh, departments in, in Britain and indeed uh, the world with a huge range of, of activities, day weekend, schools, sort of along the, the current lines, more than 15,000 of you see some regular basis here doing a range of, of um, courses through to the masters, the, the university degrees, masters and doctoral programs in, in a range of subjects, evidence-based healthcare, sustainable urban development, international human rights law, a new master just <coughs> launched in, in literature and arts. I used to say we, we did just about everything at, apart from brain surgery. Um, but actually this year we, we launched a part-time <laughs> in surgery as well, along with the Nuffield, Nuffield Department of, of Surgery at the University, where I'm pleased to say they did the teaching on that. We reassured they did the teaching on the course. Um, Kellogg, has, has, we were only established in 1990, has now grown to be, in terms of student numbers, by far the largest graduate college, and over 38 colleges, actually last year was one of the um, only St. Catherine's had more students. I suspect this year, because of those new part-time programs, will actually probably be the largest of the 38 um, colleges. I mean, graduate only because our particular <coughs> is students who are working and studying part-time. Um, we also have a range of research centers, um, including uh, the one I, I mentioned, um, which looks at mutual uh, and employment uh, business, where we do the range of things that Oxford Centre does, we do research, publications, conferences, um, and so on, try and network together academics and practitioners interested in, in these issues uh, across the country and, and indeed globally. So, um, onto the talk itself, uh, creating a John Lewis economy, whatever that means. <laughs> I mean, the first question is, well, why are, why are um, people talking about it? It has been in the, the media. Um, quite a bit, so I'll come on to that uh, in, a, in a second. Um, and then say something about the theory, why why um, people should be talking about it, why the idea came along in the first place, um, indeed, which which was um, because John Lewis's son, actually, uh, thought that employees um, deserved a share in the success of the, uh, the organization. Although I put down a, a second um, point of view theory there, which is then more generally other companies got into the idea of whether actually workers might work harder, be more productive if you, if you um, went down this, this road in, in some degree. And then going to go on and do a bit more theory, this is Oxford after all, um, looking at the, the more macroeconomic uh, arguments in terms of having different sorts of companies as well as shareholder-owned uh, companies. I realize not everyone will be economists, so I try not to use any any jargon, but uh, the first set of theories is the, the microeconomic ones looking at the individual firm, and the, the second, the macroeconomic ones looking at the economy as a, as a whole. Or I had quite a good definition of the, the difference between those concepts, which said that macro, macro, sorry, starting with micro, microeconomists are wrong about specific things, but <laughs> macroeconomists are just wrong in general. Then I, go on, then I go on to say briefly uh, something about the practice, what's, what's actually happening in the economy, whether, whether we really are uh, creating a, a John Lewis economy or not, and then conclude with, with um, some thoughts on what might be done if we did want to try and uh, spread these um, practices more widely. So firstly, what, why are people talking about it? Um, 
Actually, there's been quite a lot of interest globally uh, in these issues. This year, 2012, was actually the United, ne United Nations has designated this year as the International Year of the Cooperative, because they see cooperative is very important for economic development globally and so on. So, so actually, there has been a, a rise in interest globally, <coughs> partly explains that the talk in, in the media in Britain. But I think within Britain, certainly one of the, the main reasons is because this current coalition government um, came in very committed to, to the idea, and we're, we're talking about it. Actually, in a range of areas, including these two, but the, these two are, are maybe the, the, the two major areas of, of government policy where it came, came in. Firstly, the idea of public services being delivered through new John Lewis-style um, mutual organisations, so that anyone in the public sector um, should have the, the right to, to request to spin off their bit of the public sector, establish a mutual um, and deliver the public services uh, in that way and also because of the problems in the, the financial services sector the, the global credit crunch um, where uh, the coalition government has identified one of the problems of the, as being the fact that Britain's financial services sector is so dominated by these large shareholder owned companies which were then regarded as, as um, too big uh, to fail. It's actually just the coalition agreement making that second point that they committed themselves to bring forward detailed proposals to foster diversity, corporate diversity, promote mutuals, and create a more competitive banking industry. So that was the, the that was the, um, th those are two I think main uh, thrust behind uh, creating this John Lewis um, economy. Very briefly, what, what, uh, what does that mean? What is John Lewis? Um, now, the answers are all in this book um, by Peter Cox. I haven't met Peter Cox, but you know, I'm guessing that's you. Right? <laughs> I must have seen your picture somewhere. So, so <laughs> that, that's not Peter. No. So, so if anyone wants to really know uh, the detail, we've got the, the world expert on it uh, here who you can quiz uh, afterwards. But uh, very, very briefly, uh, John Lewis department, department store, you probably all know of Find and Buy, someone called John Lewis. Um, and it was actually his son, Speedon um, Lewis, who then, um, well, gave the company away to, to the workers as it's usually uh, characterized. The company um, owns all the, the Waitrose uh, stores um, uh, as well. You may have heard Stephen Fry saying that he, he really likes Marks and Spencers because it keeps the riffraff out of Waitrose. Waitrose <laughs> 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 uh, <Wait, laughs> and John Lewis have obviously got a, a good reputation as uh, um, high quality uh, shops and, and obviously doing quite well now. This point about there's one chair here actually. Um, there's one here. Right. right. Oh, good. Yes. One, here. one over there. Um, as I say, the, the sort of common ideas that uh, um, John Lewis, or those who know his son Speed and Lewis, sort of gave the company away to, to the workers because the the company owns both these um, shops is owned by a trust which operates in the interests of. Uh, employees. That's uh, um, not, not quite right in that it is true that the ownership of the whole company was transferred to this trust which is committed to, to running the company actually on behalf of the current and future uh, employees. And that's um, 
quite interesting and has become, uh, did become quite important when there was the huge pressure to demutualize all these sorts of organizations and most um, building societies, or at least most of the assets in the mutual building society sector were, were demutualized um, to turn them into private banks. Um, <coughs> attempt to do uh, the same with John Lewis, and one of the ways in which the the board um, was able to, or the trust was able to, to fight off those attempts was to say that it's not they weren't operating just in the interest of the current employees. If they were, then they could have said, well, if the price is high enough, it's in there, just take the money and just turn it into a, another shareholder-owned uh, company. They said they also had to think of the interests of the future. Um, employees who would be better off they thought under the, the sort of employee ownership arrangements uh, now. But the way in which it's, it's not uh, quite true is that he, he didn't he didn't actually sort of just give the company away. The company was actually um, valued and the idea was that the, the trust would then pay Speedon um, the value of the company over time, paying out from uh, property here. Now it is true that actually Pete Lewis wasn't particularly interested in money. He, he was quite philanthropic, um, and he didn't take, he didn't accept all the, uh, the, the payments to him. Um, but that's almost a, a detail. The point is, the, the idea was that he would have been paid uh, the full value of the company, and that's quite important if we're thinking about the future. About well, was this just the one-off? Is that uh, any scope for doing this? Why would anyone give their companies away? The point is, isn't the point isn't to give the company away is to sell it to the, the existing employees rather than to sell it to somebody else um, who may then just um, uh, shut it down. Now there is a, another difference as well, which is that some people, uh, individuals or families who, who don't want to continue the business might be interested in selling it to the employees who have after all helped build up, might want the, the money uh, straight away, which isn't necessarily a problem because it's quite possible to use the same structure where the trust borrows the money to pay the owner, to buy the owner out, and then that loan is, is paid off gradually over time from the, the annual um, profits. And that's generally how these uh, employee buyouts are operated, which are very seldom written because most um, banks and financial advisors either don't know about them, or if they do know about them, they're ideologically opposed to them, <laughs> and, uh, and don't give the advice. So if you do have a, a company, or your family's got a company, you go for advice to anyone really, the, the bank's a financial advisor, and ask what the options are. You know, you'd be told, well, you sell it to an existing company, or you, you float it on, a, on a, a, a stock exchange. And if you're asked, well, is this, you know, this option of selling it to the employees, um, the chances are you're told, you're told no, that's not an option. So I'll come back to that at the end, and that's, that's quite an easy way where, where things could actually be quite, um, change quite, quite rapidly. So on to the theory about why um, this sort of model was either thought of originally or, or should be uh, considered today. I mean, speed motivation was, was the first of the, these points, just thought the company uh, was successful uh, and then the employees just sort of morally should, should uh, um, enjoy some uh, share of that success that, uh, that they had um, helped to create. Nowadays, you'll, you'll um, hear these sorts of ideas and, and variants on the model at least, discussed in you know, business schools, boardrooms of, of Tesco or any other uh, company um, along the, the lines of you know, how, to, how to improve productivity of employees, how to 
um, made them more motivated and committed in order to, to, get, uh, to get there. And in that context, there will sometimes come a uh, discussion about um, creating a, a feeling of ownership and maybe even some ownership, employee share ownership, um, or, or more substantive ownership in order to, to get that productivity benefit. So that's the other sort of set of arguments um, behind considering this model or um, variance on the model. And you often heard it said that in any company, people are our most important um, assets. I mean, these are all companies say that. And obviously, the, the corollary is, well, if that's true, then you know, why aren't they, they um, uh, given a, a share of the, the action, as it were? Um, you might ask, well, if they are our most important assets, why aren't they, they in the balance sheets, which actually isn't, isn't a, a lied um, and accounting. Interestingly, with, with one exception in, in UK company law, which is football clubs are allowed to put their players <laughs> in. In Cambridge, I was um, actually a university lecturer in accounting, and one of my papers on accounting was called Is Paul Innocent Asset or a But in general, companies aren't, aren't allowed to include um, their employees as assets. Now, that, that more general um, theory of how companies, any, any company, um, Tesco or anyone else, can try and make their, their employees more productive by increasing uh, motivation, which sometimes ends up with some degree of, of uh, at least sharing ownership, employee sharership, if not sort of substantive ownership of the, the company. Um, I have actually done work in the past generically across companies, not just in mutuals, but, but uh, sharing old companies, in what the linkages are between these sort of um, uh, management practices, including ownership, and outcomes on the other hand. And these practices are sometimes referred to as high commitment work systems, where managers try to in implement a, a whole bundle of measures, including some degree of uh, ownership to try to, to improve uh, productivity. And generally, what, what um, I find the literature found generally is that you can see there are causal links, positive causal links between management following um, these sorts of practices, like also progressive human resource management practice on the one hand, and better organizational outcomes, more um, productive companies, more innovative companies on the other. But you do need a, a whole um, package of measures. First is obviously needing um, the right people. Secondly, then making sure that they're properly trained, they have the, the capabilities. Thirdly, they have to be motivated and committed. And fourthly, there must be uh, the appropriate work organization and investment. There must be some um, mechanism for them to, to um, put that, those capabilities and, and commitment into practice. And if you're, you're missing any of, of those, you're in trouble. And the first one's pretty obvious, and that actually I think was well illustrated, if you don't mind another um, football um, analogy, by the, by the um, comedian Frank, Frank Skinner, when he was talking about why his football team, West Bromwich and Albion, were doing so badly. He said it was uh, down to injury problems, because the back four weren't injured. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously you have to start with the, the right people. Um, <laughs> Then once you've got the right people, obviously they have to be uh, trained, have to have the necessary capabilities, and that's been a long-standing criticism of, of 
British industry, actually British and American industry compared to German, French, Korean, uh, Japanese, where other overseas companies seem to, to um, take longer uh, time horizons and invest more in uh, trading compared to uh, Britain and America, where, where it always seems that that's the, the first um, budget to be cut in a, in a design term, which makes nicely illustrated in this um, um, Dogbert cartoon, uh, where he's a consultant with all the directors in precisely this sort of situation where the, the companies are going to recession. Um, he said the problem won't be easy to solve because the relative brain size of the competitors are managers, beavers, and you, board of directors. So his response is, so what, what should we do? Cut the training budget again? <laughs> so obviously there's got to be a, a long-term commitment to training, and then the other two uh, pieces of jigsaw, um, motivation and commitment, and appropriate work organization and investment are the, the two steps which um, mutual ownership can uh, foster and support there in that motivation and commitment and create the appropriate work organizations that participatory management um, practices so that all employees get a, a chance to um, suggest innovations, um, different ways of, of doing things. Um, and, it, and again, I've looked at this across all types of companies, private companies, shareholder-owned companies, um, and reported in a, a number of papers. This one was in particular innovation called No Innovation by Representation, um, looking at these sorts of, of management practices of, of uh, participation and uh, representational structures. And there was a positive statistical correlation between the companies which had these sorts of practices and the, the degree innovation over time. And obviously, uh, the Tesco, a lot of PLCs will try to capture um, these benefits without giving um, ownership to um, employees, and will go a long way to try and create, uh, work hard to try and create that sort of sense of ownership, you know, having fun days and, and all the rest of it, like in, in call centers. Um, the, the head of the Employee ownership in, in America, I've heard him discuss this, this attempt by private companies to, to create the sense of ownership among the uh, employees without actually giving any ownership, where he says, yes, but it's a, it's a bit like being given the sense of having had lunch. Like, really? <laughs> so the, the, that's all the theory in terms of the individual company, why um, having employees having a stake in the, in the business may make them more commit, committed in it is, um, the, the proper participatory structures in order to, to have a say might actually have positive outcomes in terms of innovation and productivity uh, in the company. There's then a whole set of other um, arguments in, in favor of um, mutuals more generally. I can't say something like that in a second, about more mutuals in terms of having a more diversified yeah, economy. Uh, basically, idea is the, the domino effect, you know, if all your companies are exactly the same, exactly the same legal structure, exactly the same incentives, exactly the same behaviours um, in face of any uh, new development, um, you know, the first domino falls and they'll all tend to, to go the same way, or, and Keynes analysed this with, with stock markets, the, the herd effects of lemmings or all that, or I shouldn't use that example, because apparently lemmings Never have jumped over a cliff. Some sort of uh, rigged, uh, rigged build. Uh, uh, 
But the herd, herd effect is, you know, is very damaging, particularly uh, in financial markets. And the point about having uh, mutuals, employer and company share, um, customer-owned uh, companies, <coughs> they're completely different legal forms, business models, um, incentives, decision-making structures, and so on, and will tend to uh, behave quite differently in face of similar sorts of uh, shocks. As well as <coughs> the current argument that uh, the, the mega banks, the, the banks which now have got assets bigger than the countries in which they're, they're um, based, uh, are simply uh, too big, because governments then feel obliged to, to bail them out um, for them. Collapse should be split up, and so if they are going to do that, they should be split up into a range of different ownership forms. The, uh, some of these points are made in, in a whole series of, of um, podcasts that I did with another Oxford colleague, Linda Yu, and all these are, are downloadable um, free of charge from the, the University of Oxford website, the iTunes website. If any of you haven't come across this, you should, you should definitely go there. And the university's got literally hundreds, I think probably literally thousands of, of uh, lectures, podcasts there, all, all downloadable, um, free of charge. Um, and actually, the, the number one downloadable podcast globally is from a, a colleague from the Department for Continuing Education on uh, Philosophy, Marion Talbot. Um, we've got several One, one of uh, my ones in the crisis did, did get to um, number three, so I haven't boasted about it too much because my colleague got to number one, although when it got to number three, <coughs> sorry, it got to number two, because it, it, I remember now it did keep <coughs> Barack Obama's election inaugural address to number three. <laughs> <laughs> um, the arguments we make there and, and elsewhere is that having a, a stronger um, mutual sector, I know that before actually this is accepted by and enshrined in the, the coalition agreement, so supported by the, the current government in theory, whether or not they, they um, support in practice uh, is yet uh, uh, really demonstrated. Um, but the argument is really threefold. Firstly, that the, the mutual model, and sorry, I should pause, pause now actually and, and just say a bit about what I mean by mutual. <coughs> These terms are used differently by, by different people. They are, they are so it can be quite confusing, but, but basically, um, by mutual I, I mean uh, an organisation that's owned by its members. And so those members can be the employees, as in John Lewis, um, or they can be um, the, the customers, as in um, mutual, <coughs> mutual building societies, or some combination. So actually the, the Foundation Trust Hospital model that's now been implemented in, in the NHS, technically those are uh, legally, they're, they're <coughs> mutuals, they're, they're registered as industrial and profit societies, which is how mutuals, um, many mutuals are, are registered. Um, and so the, the technical owners, I say technical because obviously Foundation Trust Hospitals aren't really a, a company like John Lewis, but nevertheless, te technically they're, they're owned by their members, which in that case is a hybrid between um, employees and customers, and patients, uh, and, and the local community, actually. So you, you can have um, <coughs> hybrid mutuals with, with um, um, the members, owners, drawn from different uh, constituencies. So that's a broader, broader definition of, of mutuals. 
firstly, there are advantages in the model um, itself. The fact that um, their corporate purpose is to deliver for the customers, if it's a customer-owned um, uh, mutual, rather than um, trying to, to maximize um, dividends and share prices just for, for external shareholders. So firstly, there are some inherent um, benefits. Mm -hmm. Secondly, to the extent you've got a, a mixed market, there is strong um, evidence that the shareholder-owned companies, so the financial social sector, you know, Barclays, um, 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 HBOS, or whatever, do actually uh, provide their customers with a better deal if they're faced with competition, particularly from mutual um, building societies and cooperative <coughs> banks, rather than just with another, yet another um, shareholder in banks. And then thirdly, the, the point I made before about the, the herd um, behavior, domino effects, and so on. Um, the, the, the financial services sector as a whole will be more resilient if you have a, a greater biodiversity, basically, <coughs> of business models and corporate forms. <coughs> and this is, these items are all made in, in detail in this publication from our Oxford Center, which actually did get a, a forward from Danny Alexander, the, the, uh, from the, the Treasury. Um, so just to prove that they do agree in principle. Um, and I brought along a couple of copies of this already, and one said, all the publications I'll refer to are all downloadable free of charge <coughs> from the catalog web website, if anyone wants them, or if anyone wants hard copies, I've got plenty of these, so just ask me or email me, and I can post to you on that copies. Um, very briefly, that, what, what uh, that argues is that when the state-owned banks, what are now state-owned, because we, the taxpayer, bailed them out, bought them, when they're turned, um, to the, to the private sector, they should be broken up with the relevant parts going to the mutual sector. Most obviously, the parts which were operating <coughs> successfully for generations in the mutual sector before they were demutualized and joined these mega um, PLC uh, banks. But maybe most important, actually, is this second point about needing a, a culture change. And it's probably worth pointing out that, that while the cooperative mutual employer sector is a pretty small sector of the the UK economy, maybe 5%, so 95% um, outside. That's a, that itself is a bit of an aberration. I mean, most other uh, advanced capitalist countries, free market economies, whatever you, you call them, you know, France, Germany, Sweden, Spain, America, Japan, um, <coughs> a far higher um, proportion, 10%, you know, 15%, even more than 20% in, in Finland with the economy under these sorts of um, mutual structures. And one of the problems with Britain having such a, um, a dominance of the large PLC model is that all politicians, regulators, civil servants just tend to assume that that is the model, that is what businesses are. So the design regulations to fit that, which can be extremely damaging um, to mutuals, um, employing companies without, even if it's not being done deliberately. Uh, so there is a real problem with, with just accept acting as if the PLC is, is the law. Um, so we, we go further and say actually regulators should be obliged to promote corporate diversity, since that is the, the aim of government, maybe of a minister of mutuals to bring the, these policies um, together. But above all, just learn the lesson from the um, credit crunch. And this mainly about shareholder value, about the, the idea that private companies, their duty is to maximize the, the share price and the dividend um, paid out from that was actually first coined by by Jack Welch, um, who then famously after the credit crunch said that shareholder value is the dumbest idea in the world. <laughs>
<laughs> now, this was all looked at by um, something called the Ownership Commission. This is their final report. Again, downloadable free of charge. Anyone's welcome to take this one or ask for, for mm -hmm. other copies, which was chaired by Will, Will Hutton, who then coincidentally moved to Oxford after uh, um, chairing it. And, and I was on it, and the research was done by, by um, my centre. It was launched um, actually just just um, as a previous government was still in power and they were enthusiastic about it, although it's, uh, uh, it was an independent commission and the, the current government was enthusiastic in Prince Cable's launch and said these things um, should be done. And this was looking largely at the, you know, the standard business model, the PLCs uh, across the economy. Um, and it did, and it argued for better stewardship of companies rather than just short-term um, uh, maximization of, of share prices. But it did um, endorse this, this argument that it was in the interest of, of the whole economy to create plurality, of greater diversity of corporate ownership models, and therefore um, the British economy would be better off with a stronger corporate and mutual um, sector. And it also talked about engagement of, of uh, employees and shareholders, um, which is obviously linked to the <coughs> way I talked before, because one way of engaging employees is Very briefly on, on each of these um, three. Uh, firstly, as I say, the, the Commission did endorse this argument about having um, a great diversity, and not just mutuals and confidence, but actually the British economy's um, peculiar in having such a small proportion of, of private com companies, family owned companies, etc., compared to America or the European economy. We're just very dominated by the large shareholder and PLC um, model. And if we had a greater uh, diversity, it would make the system as a whole um, more resilient, as well as giving different investors different choices. In terms of stewardship of, of companies, uh, this is the idea that for the PLC model, um, the, the directors should have duties other than just maximizing the, the financial interests of the external shareholders. They, they should take a broader view as well of the impact on the economy, the community, um, employees, customers so on. And then finally, um, this engagement, if, if a company is um, owned by uh, shareholders, well, if the argument is that whatever corporate form there is, is helpful if the, the members, the owners, uh, take some interest in it. Um, if you're, and that one advantage, potential, so it's not worked out, but one advantage of having the, the customers and employees as, as members, they've got an inherent interest in the, the company performing well and del delivering well. One problem, obviously, with the shareholder-owned companies is, is most shareholders have no interest in the company and, and what it does. They probably share, selling the shares in less than a year and, and buying, um, switching share to shares in other companies. So it's important to try to get that long-term link in interest. Now, very briefly, I just point out, I mean, it, it did have, this commission did have the, the head of um, um, John Lewis and head of the, the cognitive group on it, and I'll, I'll put a very mixed group. And um, Sir Roger Carr, uh, as, as I say, Will Hutton chaired it, who's actually not since come to, to Oxford, coincidentally. Um, but Sir Roger Carr was interesting because um, he's, he's uh, uh, chair of Centrica at the moment, the energy company. He's also president of the Confederation of British Industry, what it brings, um, represents the 
for the um, British industry. But also, he was chair of Cadbury's at the time when um, the American company Crafts uh, tried to take it over. Now, um, he, he said that, that um, he and the board thought that Cadbury's was actually doing quite well, could do better, obviously they had various ideas to, to improve its performance over time, but it was um, doing quite well, had a very secure future, um, globally as well as in, in Britain, and that it would be in the interest of the company to remain independent, as well as in the interest of the, the employees, the customers, the um, community in which they operated. And so they wanted to reject the bid. The bid. They were told by their lawyers that under UK company law, that would be illegal. They were obliged to accept the bid, even though they thought it was against the interests of the company um, itself. Because um, UK company law says that um, directors must um, act in the fiduciary interest of the, the shareholders. And the price is right, you have to accept it. Um, so he was he was quite strongly of the, the very supportive of the recommendations that um, directors should have broader interests than just the fiduciary uh, duty to maximise the, the return, financial return to the external uh, shareholders. Okay, um, onto the practice. Well, I'm now implying even said that that mutuals. Um, it is a good model, more at least potentially, if, uh, if it's uh, worked out and potentially delivered. Um, but I think in all these, I mean, the standard question of, okay, if you're so clever, why aren't you rich, is always worth um, thinking about. Um, if these are so good, why aren't there, there more of them? I mean, I've hinted at that already. Part is a self-fulfilling prophecy where there, there's such a, a small proportion of the economy, regulators tend to uh, ignore them. Um, but there are some, some other uh, additional uh, reasons explaining why, in Britain, at least, there's such a small proportion. Firstly, they, obviously, they're, they're not able to just issue more shares to, to raise capital. Although that, that can be exaggerated, because actually most PLCs, most shareholder companies, don't um, sell shares to, to raise um, capital. You know, they, there may be a motivation for closing them originally, although usually it's just because whoever owned the company originally was told by their advisors that's the only way of selling your company to sell it to the shareholder-owned company. Generally, shareholder-owned companies, once they are shareholder-owned companies, they tend to finance themselves through their um, profits um, and bank lending. Nevertheless, they can issue more shares if they really do need to raise a lot of capital, whereas um, mutuals aren't able to. However, um, governments could and should address that. There are, there are things they could do to, to make it easier to mutuals to raise funds. Um, secondly, there, there has been bad legislation um, in the past, or legislation which explains why quite successful areas of the economy, which were usually owned like the building societies, were all demutualized. That was because of legislative changes um, in the 1980s made it easy to, to um, cash in. And so you had the situation of, of people joining a mutual just to vote stop the mutual so they can get their, their share of the value which has been built up over, over generations. So in Britain in particular, there has been bad um, legislation. And also uh, the point about the lack of advice in Britain in particular of um, this option, if you want to sell your company, of selling it to, to members who may be customers, employees, 
look at BT other than just um, selling it to an existing rival company or closing on a set of stock. So, you know, it's not a complete mystery as to, as to why this potentially quite elder sector economy is so small, particularly in the UK. Um, and we, in terms of the um, example of Northern Rock, I, mean, I mentioned the, the um, potential of returning those failed financial institutions which governments have to buy up because they, they failed, returning those to uh, the mutual sector. Um, Northern Rock was one of those successful mutual building societies which was demutualized, turned into a private bank, um, got involved in all the speculative activities that private banks did up until uh, the credit crunch and, and went um, bankrupt as a result. But Northern, Northern Rock is particularly uh, well known uh, globally because it was, the, it was the one that reinvented the idea of the bank run. Capitalism was trying to develop and trying to develop banks. People wouldn't trust this strange organization holding their money, and as soon as they got nervous, they'd go and ask for it to ask for it back, and the whole bank would collapse. So, governments had to introduce legislation and regulation and have minimum reserve requirements, and that, and that solved the problem. Um, up until Northern Rock, where there was these pictures sent around the world of people queuing up all, all night to get their money back, and sure enough, the uh, um, bank collapsed. So it, in here we've um, advocated returning to the mutual sector and also did a, a separate briefing note for government at their request on the mechanics of it, how, how much the government would get to, um, over time. Uh, unfortunately, they sold it to Richard Branson um, instead. Uh, and actually, the, the government minister was, was challenged in, in Parliament about why they hadn't uh, um, returned to the mutual sector. And he, he said that uh, they received no no advice on how that could be done. And he even said, uh, and he even said the auction centre had given no advice, even though he knew that was untrue. He knew that we'd actually handed over um, the documents to actually UK FI people who come up um, to see us provide it. There you go. So that wasn't so good. And and this got in just after that that danger of people saying, well, we're in good enough shape to start making the same mistakes again, you know, that it will just be back to, to businesses as usual, um, and that we will just then have another credit crunch for us in five years, ten years, fifteen years um, time. However, and, and, and so I, I think it's important to put this in a, a broader historical context, and it's very important that we don't let government just say, well, we're over the worst yet, and it looks like next year the economy will recover, and, and so we can carry on. Um, the economy over the last hundred years or so has gone through clear um, eras of development with very different regulatory ownership um, structures. And actually, the most most successful under any any measure at all was from 1945 to 1973, having growth rates, employment rates, and quality improvements in health, whatever. Um, and that was followed by a quite different 30 years of what the Oxford economist, who sadly passed away very recently, Andrew Glynn, um, described as capitalism unleashed, when the, those regulations, which of course had been introduced in 1945 to try to prevent a repeat of the Wall Street crash and the recessions of the depression of the 1930s, splitting up investment banks from, from high street banks and so on. Um, those regulations have been depending on age of capitalism, but there was continual pressure to deregulating that happened uh, during that 30 years. 
um, which I would argue contributed uh, directly to the, to the credit crunch and, and subsequent global recession. So 2009 was actually the first year since the 1930s when the world's income fell. It was actually a global recession. So it's important that, that we put the argument quite ambitiously for another era, 2030, 40 year era of, of um, recovery and development um, sustainably, sustainably um, on both economic and, and social as well as environmental um, terms. And what I argue is obviously mutual ownership isn't the answer to all that, but as part of um, the, the Green New Deal reintroduction regulation in terms of um, dividing off the speculative from the high street uh, uh, roles of banks and so on, a stronger um, mutual sector of the economy would help to tackle uh, the problem. Now, and, and actually on the positive side, I mean, fair trade has been quite um, encouraging, A, in its success, I mean, it used to be only the co-op shop was the only one in Britain that would stock it, and now almost everyone stocks fair trade. But interestingly, it's not just about making sure that farmers in Africa or elsewhere get a decent price at the moment. Part of it is actually to organize them as producer cooperatives, as mutuals, to give them the, the market power to then deal with Tesco's and so on and in the future, even if it, when they may be more of a <coughs> And actually, the, um, the cooperative bank has bought um, um, 632 branches for, from Lloyd's, which will increase it from under 4% at the moment to like 10% market share. So um, within the next year or two, the Co-op um, Bank in, in Britain should be challenging the, the PLC banks. And there are, there are some um, positive um, indications. So finally, what can we do if we want to encourage that, that um, development, which I think would be uh, to everyone's benefit, economically and socially? Um, firstly, there are things government could do in terms of making um, the, the business succession options um, more widely known that um, selling to a mutual is a, a possibility. Um, and in, in terms of the idea I referred to at the beginning of de delivering more public services through mutuals, I mean, that's really been a failure. Actually, I mean, government is a million public sector workers um, moving into their own mutuals, and very few have. And the reason is, obviously, there's no guarantee that um, that work won't, once the contract comes up in three years' time, be hoovered up by the big multinationals who have literally billions um, of turnover a year, so could tender for nothing. You know, they could offer to do work for nothing and apparently affect their global profitability. Um, they also get contracts and then obviously um, increase the prices later. So there needs to be some sort of guarantee that, that, that those solutions will continue existence and continue to be allowed to deliver those public services. I mean, customers obviously can, can um, do it themselves, move their, their money uh, into mutual building societies, corporate banks, and there was a big big switch to in energy providers, which interesting was just to um, pool customers' economic power um, and go with whichever energy provider um, offered the best terms. And it was actually just coincidental that the, the, the best deal happened to be from a cooperative um, energy provider. So that big switch has led to a big increase in uh, cost of provision of energy. And finally, um, all of us can help to, to raise awareness in um, various ways. Um, 
one way I'm proud to admit is by introducing new courses in the Department for Continuing Education on uh, mutualism, social entrepreneurship, and so on. And one way you can help is by help publicize our courses. The one on social entrepreneurship launches next month, and there's also one on employer ownership, which will uh, launch early next year. So I hope you sign up for the courses. I hope you enjoy them. Thank you very much. Thank you.